a so we have ourselves a situation here um i have an episode that i have recorded that i was going to use today but um i'm just gonna hold off on that one because uh, the person wanted me to pause on it so i will do that but i don't want to be one of those podcasts where i say i'm gonna put out an episode and i say i'm gonna put one out every two weeks at least so you're gonna get yourself an episode especially with people who supporting me um by the way, there are people who have supported me on the Patreon whose names I haven't read yet. Those names will be read in some of the upcoming episodes. I recorded a lot of these episodes back in August, so um, don't worry. I did not forget anybody who has supported me. Um, so the most recent person who supported me, though, is uh, Antonella and Sarah, uh, or Nella. And uh, thank you for your support. Um, and... Yeah, so this one, what am I going to do in this episode? Well, um, this is going to stand as season two, episode four of Unstandardized English. I should have said at the beginning, but, you know, last minute sort of thing here. Um, We'll see if this really sounds any different, though, because I don't really do things very differently um, from episode to episode. I think I might... uh... Yeah, so what I'm going to focus on today, though, is something that I've heard uh, a little bit. And that is really about why I bother with whiteness. You know, why do I bother with it? As opposed to focusing on promoting blackness and promoting other forms of racial identities. Or even why I buy into the fictional concept of race altogether. So that's what I'm going to sort of unpack today. Hopefully that you find this interesting because... Um, I would like to be able to point to this episode whenever people ask me why I bother. Okay. So, whiteness. Um, I've talked about this a lot. In fact, I changed the description on my uh, Twitter page for this podcast to say that I'm working against epistemological whiteness and racial-linguistic ideologies. Because um, I've realized in the research I've been doing and the writing I've been doing that so much of the power of whiteness is in epistemology. It's in the creation of knowledge itself right? The things that we have been told to accept as fact have been created by the people in power. And in this country and many other countries, the people in power have uh, perpetuated whiteness. Now, I don't necessarily want to say that you have to be white to perpetuate whiteness. In fact, um, one might say that a better way to describe the system is capitalism, and that's fine. I think whiteness and capitalism are inextricably linked. And I worry sometimes that it's easier for white people, especially in the United States, to decry capitalism than to deal with whiteness. That's why you see a lot of white men, especially saying that we don't need to talk about identity politics when everything that they do is identity politics. Um, Capitalism is terrible and kills a lot of people. Uh, But we needed the epistemology of whiteness in order for capitalism to flourish. So even if we somehow got rid of capitalism, and that would be great, if we don't get rid of the underpinning, the whiteness that's there, um, then something else terrible will just be in its place. I don't 
want to imply that there was not oppression before whiteness, of course, and, and not that there wasn't slavery before whiteness, of course. Uh, it just wasn't the same type of slavery. Broadly speaking, the slavery that existed before whiteness was much more of the I beat you in a war and I took your people type of thing. Now that's not good, war is not good, um, but it didn't usually justify itself with a you know, transatlantic or trans any ocean slave trade by classifying a group of people as inherently inferior and therefore not only deserving of the slavery, but being bettered by being enslaved, right? Um, you don't need to know all the history. People have written books about it. Um, I write articles where I reference this history and then whenever I give a presentation, I bring this up because one of the main points I make is that the concept of whiteness is inextricable from white supremacy. It's very easy, I think, for people to focus on white supremacy. And you've, I, I said this on the vocal fries a few weeks ago. It's very easy for people to focus on white supremacy. Um, we know it's bad, right? Uh, we know it's not true, right? Um, but there was no time in which uh, whiteness has existed as a concept, as a system in which it was not purported to be superior. There was no time when we, or after whiteness was created, that it was inferior or equal. It, it was created to be superior. It was created to be supreme. You know, it was a group of people whose skin tones vary, um, who were better than other people. Um, and not just better, but therefore deserving of doing whatever the hell they wanted to do to the other people. So, one of the things I sometimes hear in these discussions, though, is that people focus too much on whiteness or white supremacy or that sort of thing, and not as much, not enough on building ourselves up, our, our groups. Um, a friend asked me, a colleague asked me about this recently, that people say, well, why do we focus on this? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really not what we need to be doing. And I saw a Twitter thread this weekend from a quote unquote anti-racist educator who says focusing on whiteness, you know, automatically means you believe in the construction of race um, and you are missing the point. Um, so to respond to those things, of course, I don't believe that race exists as an actual thing right? Racism is a system and whiteness is uh, the top of the pyramid of racism. Uh, I don't think race exists as a biological thing. One of the problems with the Jessica Cruz story, which in retrospect, we should probably stop calling her that, right? Isn't her last name Krug, right? Right? She told us to call it Cruz because she was pretending to be Latinx. Anyway, um, was that everybody was saying, well, I could tell from looking at her that she wasn't Black. No, you could not. I mean, looking back, it looks ridiculous, right? But Black people look all sorts of ways. You don't know, maybe her, I mean, I'm saying fictionally, maybe her mother was Black, but particular, but you know, but light-skinned and uh raised her with a lot of pride in her, you know, blackness. That could have been the case. And in fact, it makes sense to be skeptical if you see someone looking like that, talking about how black they are. But I tell you, if I had seen her on the original city council 
thing where she's talking about like my black and brown siblings, my black and brown siblings, get the fuck out of here, you know, and it's just like, it's just ridiculous now. But if I'd seen that live, I would have thought, well, the pandemic is getting to her, I understand. Um, and I would have thought, I would have taken her at her word, which maybe I shouldn't do. Um, because I would have thought maybe she's someone who, be, you know, looking the way she does, understand that she's not going to be taken very seriously in the Black community by people who don't know her. And so she really has to step it up. I know when I was a kid, sometimes I would speak in a little bit more, um, you know, African-American language um, or African-American English. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of words for it. I don't like to use vernacular because it implies that it's lesser, but I also understand that AAVE is an acceptable way to describe it. But anyway, I would speak more that way um, when I was around my black friends and it wasn't inauthentic. I really, that is one of the registers in which I can speak, um, or one of the languages, I guess I could say, but so I would understand sometimes feeling uncomfortable wanting to, to, to sort of mold yourself to people around you. I say all of this to say that, um, it's important for us to understand that building ourselves up as people and especially as educators is very important. So I don't dismiss that requirement, right? You know, culturally sustaining pedagogies, like those things are really important. Um, and I don't want to denigrate anybody who's doing that. There's no but coming. I'm not saying, but they're bad. Nope. Nope. I just know, I don't know that I have a ton to add to that conversation. Like, um, I don't know that my skill is building on those things. Um, I've, one of the struggles I've had in my career is that when you know, I started teaching in South Korea, um, where I was one of the few Black people, and then I came back to New York and I was teaching, you know, mostly Asians, um, East Asian students, um, and then some Latinx students over time. And eventually I taught some people from Africa, you know, um, I know Africa is not a race. I'm just talking about locations here. Um, and I always wanted to work with more black students because I didn't have very many in my teaching career. Um, but in my more recent work, and I'm not talking about my doctoral studies, I've had black students and sometimes I've struggled to connect, not, I don't think I'm a bad teacher or anything, but they, um, you know, I, I can come off like a Carlton, you know what I'm saying? And I don't mean the part of Carlton that doesn't understand racism and didn't understand why Will got pulled over by the cops or whatever. I don't mean that. I mean, I'm, you know, a Carlton, if you, Carlton Urkel type, I'm just sort of kind of a square nerd guy, you know? And we can really get into the analysis of masculinity and what that means and so forth. But for whatever reason, some of the students, uh, and I'm talking about black American students here in this case, um, cause I'm not actually teaching English language right now. Um, hadn't gotten to me. Maybe cotton is not a good word to use there. Uh, but I, I'm, they, you know, and so, um, when I started my doctoral studies, the director said everyone's doing race as a subject, which I will continue to say because it's funny that I'm doing some good work here on this stuff. But what I think he meant was that a lot of people are 
studying black people and probably doing it poorly. And I wasn't sure from, even though I'm black, if I was going to do research on black students, I still wouldn't feel like I was coming from an insider perspective based on either class or something else. Um, and I didn't know that my work would be very good. You know, I thought about focusing research on maybe interviewing people who were in my exact position. So um, people who went to independent schools, things like that, black students in independent schools. And, you know, there's value in that. There's people doing that work and I've started to connect with them. But this year when I started writing about my own story in an independent school, I realized that the best work I was going to, the only black voice that I felt comfortable telling the story of was my own, um, which is why a lot of my work is autoethnographic, which is what this whole podcast is to some extent. I'm talking to people, but in, in a way it's, it's helping me understand the work I do. I'm getting off topic, which, you know, this is how I talk and this time there's nobody to talk to me and get me on track. Uh, but the point is, I just didn't, don't feel that I have the skills, don't feel that I have the ability to really tell strong pedagogical stories um, for, you know, about uh, Black people in that sense, unless they're me which is a shame, but I, I really can, I, I do what I can to amplify other voices in that sense. So what do I have the skills to do though? Well, I know white people. <laughs> I mean, every black person knows white people, but I mean, I really know some white people. Um, I don't claim to know all white people, hashtag not all white people, but uh, I know a certain type of white people. And I know the certain type of white people who reads journal articles. And I know a certain type of white people who writes journal articles, I know them. I know how they think. <laughs> I know what goes into the way that they build arguments. I know what they were taught. I was taught the same way that they were and by the same people. Um, I was in some of the most exclusive educational institutions. And uh, I know what their weird conditional praise is like from the inside. And on the other hand, I can't quite know what they're like from the inside because I'll never be all the way on the inside. So the reason I focus on whiteness um, is because it's where I have the most ability to actually sound like I know what I'm talking about, you know? Because I do know what I'm talking about. Uh, and unlike trying to specifically call up interpersonal instances of you know, overt racism, of which I have plenty, like any Black person who's been around Black people. Um, I really think about the patterns in the way that these institutions ran. And then I think about the work now, right? I'm a doctoral student, you know, a little bit more than halfway through my, my program. And I think about how when we do like a, just the, the conceptualization of academia, I'm gonna, this episode is gonna be mostly about academia. Like, it's like a meta episode. Uh, scholarship, man. Like I use the word scholarly because it means a certain thing, but like, you know, reading from like Eve Talk 
um, and things like that, like what really counts as research, right? Because um, I, I was writing a paper last fall about meritocracy and how the belief in meritocracy is harmful for people who are oppressed. Um, and because it was a quantitative class, I, you know, my professor made me go and find statistics for everything that I was claiming. Now, I know well enough not to claim anything numerical without finding numbers that back it up. And you heard me talk a little bit about this two episodes ago in the Quant Crit episode with uh, Rebecca Campbell Montalvo. But um, you, I know why you have to do that. In a quantitative paper, you have to put all the numbers in. Um, and you have to do it in some qualitative work, too, to back up what you're saying. But I, I, I came to realize at a certain point, right, that if you need, if, if you're a person who genuinely believes that Black people are inferior or that Black people are making up racism, right, uh, these things aren't true. On no planet is one statistic going to suddenly convince you that these claims that we're making are true. You can give them a million numbers. If you fundamentally believe in like the bell curve stuff, right? That black people are less intelligent, less worthy. If you fundamentally believe in the tenets of whiteness, basically, then no single number is going to disabuse you of this notion. So I don't even try anymore. You know, I, I include very few numbers in my written work. Um, I used to be a math kid too, which is funny. Like I was, I, I skipped an entire grade because I was good at math when I was five. Uh, but now like, you know, there's one of the big studies that I found interesting was by Seth Gershenson. And it was talking about how having one black teacher increases the chance of graduation and then having two increases it more. And you only have to have literally one black teacher by like third grade or whatever it is. So a lot of people picked up on that. That one got carried by, you know, national popular verticals and things like that. It was in like Newsweek and all that. Just Newsweek still exists, I don't know. But anyway, um, But was there a single person who didn't care about how many Black teachers, Black students had, who saw that and then decided, well, now I care? Most likely, and I understand why these studies are done, it gives additional ballast to people who already know that there is a problem. So there's a value to that. But I don't, you know, I don't want to just be, as a researcher, as a scholar, and again, talk about what that phrase means, um, just giving more ballast, like just numerical ballast to people um, who uh, already know the problem because it's not going to convince the people who don't think it's a problem. In other words, when I say that I, I focus on whiteness, to me, I'm not really talking about the, you know, the, the people who are out there burning masks and all this nonsense. Like, I don't have any, I'm not arguing with them. They can go, 
you know, be dangerous to themselves and I keep my mask on and not, and I, hopefully they don't get me and my family sick. But um, I am here to talk to people who are already compelled by some of the ideas that I bring up and are just not, they haven't had it put into words what can be done about it. So that's why I focus on whiteness. Um, one of the things, and I mentioned capitalism, is that, and I get kind of insecure about the fact that I did not grow up working class. Um, I, I guess I was professional managerial class, or my parents were, I don't know what I was. Um, I've always had a weird relationship with that because both of my parents definitely grew up in between working class and poor. My dad didn't have running water when he was a kid in like literal Jim Crow, North Carolina. Um, I mean, he got it eventually, but not when he was born. Um, and, you know, they, they, what's interesting is those the two of them are both people who people with more power would point to with the bootstrap thing. I'm not saying they did. I'm saying that if you were constructing a narrative, they would be the people to some extent. Like they're not, my dad doesn't have like six houses or anything. He doesn't have any houses. He just lives in the same apartment for the last 45 years. But um, it, it's, you know, they didn't have much. They were accepted into elite institutions as they integrated. And then they had financially successful careers in New York. Neither of them are from New York. Um, and then I was born. And they wanted me to have everything or everything that they were able to afford. So I had a lot. But I'm in this weird position because the schools I went to, I had less than everybody around me. I know I was never poor or anything like that. But my point is, I feel insecure talking. I talk about whiteness, but, um, and I bring up capitalism because I do think capitalism is harming everybody. But, you know, I, uh, I am not someone who's speaking from my own personal experience having been um, deprived in that way. On the other hand, it's one of the reasons why I'm very certain about the impact of whiteness, white supremacy, which I, like I said are the same thing to me because there wasn't a massive class difference for me. The students clearly treated me the way they did because of my, well, I shouldn't say because of my race. You don't say that because of their racism. There was a class difference. Like I said, these people had Hamptons houses. We didn't have that. Um, and I'm not complaining. I'm just stating a fact here. Um, but it was mostly racism. And only in like with professional help and a whole bunch of other stuff that I figure out how harmful racism had been to me 
when I was growing up. Because, again, with capitalism, they tell you because my parents, my mom's a lawyer, uh, my dad, I, I honestly don't even know what my dad really does. <laughs> but um, they tell you that those people, you know, people in, in, in my position are safe. Safer, I am certainly was safer. But, you know, I don't really think the police care. <laughs> Uh, they're not doing raids in my neighborhood, but they've hassled me several times. Um, they don't pull me over because I don't drive very often. But, like, you know, I got a ticket for sitting on Colony Island with a glass of wine once. And, you know, the police were repeatedly asking me if I had any warrants and they were telling me not to lie to them. I don't need to go into that. The point is the cops don't care how much money your parents have. Um, and so, like I said, I get a little uncomfortable with the class thing. I had a lot to learn about it. I still have a lot more to learn about it the same way that I will always have a lot to learn about gender. Um, I also don't talk as much from the lens of gender. I'm very critical of masculinity, especially because you know, with my experiences not being traditionally macho in a lot of ways, um, it, you know, it was hard for me to find my place, especially being a black guy. You know, I didn't fit into very many boxes. Um, so I ended up in the Carlton slash Urkel box. And if you are younger than me, you don't know who Carlton and Urkel are. Well, that's too bad for you. I cannot help you with that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that's basically what I was treated as somewhere between Carlton and Urkel in most of my adolescence. Um, so I got uncomfortable with it and I, 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 um, you know, I also understand that, I mean, part of this is also owing to, um, some of my experiences with white leftists who, men especially, oh, some women, but mostly men, um, it's very easy for them to talk about the danger, you know, the, the problems with capitalism, and they're right about that. But, like, they're very easy. They just skip over the race as aspect. Um, and so I, you know, I've always been a little bit uncomfortable you know, trying to build a really strong leftist identity myself, but also understanding that, like, a lot of leftist movements, especially in the United States, are we're really far behind on race and racism. They're not behind liberals or behind conservatives, but they're behind where they need to be. So, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to push a certain version of you know, leftist, I mean, I don't even, like, left to me is not, I don't want to put myself in a box of kind of a, I want to say, I kind of want to say I'm post-structuralist, but that's a label too. Um, and so all of this, part of this conversation, by the way, started when I was talking about <laughs> quoting statistics in an article. I think that Doing that doesn't help anybody. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I did it because it was my assignment. But I also tend to think that you're not going to convince anybody who's causing harm that they're causing harm by trying. You're not going to prove that they're harmful to them. 
you're not gonna do it, right? I have a good friend from college who I've talked about a lot on here. He really does think you can, he, he's debated people into changing their minds. They probably just wanted you to shut up, dude. Um, but, so I just try to, to use a word that um, in a book that I will be published in next year, consilience, great word. And I did not use it in the article, or the chapter that I wrote for that book, but basically bringing disparate strands of things together. Um, I try to weave related, but not necessarily the same ideas together so that um, I can advance some sort of new thought. That to me is my skill. And it just so happens that my skill is putting those ideas together and tying them to a number of interrelated things, whiteness, anti-blackness, education, ability and disability, um, intelligence, you know, whatever you want to call it, a star or a pentagon, whatever those, those main ideas are. You know, my, what I'm saying usually floats in there. And I try to bring different things together so that I can build towards an important point. Um, and I think that there is value in that, uh, even if I do understand why sometimes racialized scholars will say that focusing on race, um, on racism, or focusing on whiteness is not necessarily the way to do things. So I understand why sometimes people say that. On the other hand, I also do think that, you know, scholarship itself, uh, academia, you know, where the knowledge comes from is a big part of the problem. Because I have these um, professors <laughs> who work with me and then they'll tell me about the top, top journals, the top, like the top. Um, and it's bullshit, man. I mean, I'm not blaming the professors. They're telling me what is, how things are considered. I wish that they would frame it as what is considered the top journal as opposed to affirming that they are the top journals. Um, but like, I, so I finally joined AERA and I don't know why I had resisted it, but I did. And I got all these back issues of two of their publications. And like, there is really good stuff in there. But who the hell is going to read that? Yeah, the members. Okay. But you don't know that they're going to read it. <laughs> uh, you just know that they have it. And frankly, if I'm writing something, I want the electronic version so I can go and get a quote, type it up. Right, like I am not reading a print version of something and typing in a quote from the print version to say this thing. Cause that's the thing. I, I tend to quote a little bit longer stretches than people tend to in academia. And I understand that word limits make that impossible a lot of the time, but I don't like to do the, here's these five articles that say the same thing. Like, yeah, I just feel like you're still trying to convince people who don't agree with you at that point. Um, but, so like having these print versions of these things, like it'll be cool if I ever get into one, I guess. Um, the same way it would be cool to win an Oscar, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily mean you're the best. It's just 
it's a cool experience to be recognized by your peers. And I, I, I don't begrudge anybody the feeling of wanting to be recognized by their peers. Um, but on the other hand, like, so like the whole top journals thing, the H, like, you know, this stuff is made up, right? It's made up. Bullshit. There are levers of power. And one of the things I learned this summer, I was working on what you may have read that op-ed that I wrote or co-wrote. It's in the Washington Post, right? Washington Post. Okay. The my co my my co-author um, has done this before. She's professor. Well, she well she like you know runs one of those like research institutes at a school. But she's you know has professorship or whatever. Um, so she's fired off op-eds before. She asked me to write with her. And she was kind enough to pass the mic and give me the lead authorship. So that article says me and her, not her and me. Cool. But when we were putting it together, we were going to try to put it in the Times. And then just by chance, the Times had an article coming out same day about the same thing. So they said, no, fair, that's legit. So then we pass it around to a bunch of other publications. And then they all said no. And then um, we shortened it and sent it to the post lady. And she said, yes. So the reason I bring this up is the people we were passing it around to at the other publications, these are big publications. You know, it was like five people. You're talking about like seven white men. Well, I think there was a woman in there, right? Um, and these are not names that people know, right? I know these names because she knows these names. I'm not going to say who they are. Um, in fact, they said not to share who they are. I'm not going to do it. But it's like a few white people making these decisions about what gets, ends up in these op-ed pages, right? Um, and... It was interesting to see that up close and then get in the paper anyway. So it's interesting to see that the barriers are usually the people that I'm talking about with my work, right? Um, on top of that, what, what, how many art people read a journal article? Do you know? No, you don't. Because you're never going to find out. I mean, especially if it's a print version. All they know is how many people they have as members. They do have numbers on citations, for recent things at least. And there are definitely influential articles by the number of citations. Which is why, I, of course, advocate that we need to cite scholars of color, especially, especially women of color. Um, if you don't have scholars of color, in your bibliography, and you are writing about students of color, you should probably rethink that. But anyway, um, you don't know how many people read journal articles. I don't know how many people read journal articles. Uh, it's not a lot. 
there have been some stu- funny ironically there have been some studies on people reading journal articles nobody reads these articles unless you're really really interested especially if they're more quantitative and people, a lot of people just they go to the findings or they go to the literature review just so they can see if there's other things they want to do a lot of the time it's just other students and scholars looking for information for their writing how many people read journal articles for the pleasure of reading journal articles? Like the way they would read a magazine article, right? And I'm not saying that these are the best articles in the world, but think about the way that some people, certain types of people, will sit in their house and be really excited when the New Yorker comes every week. They wanna read that five million page interview of this dictator's child. I don't know what they're doing in the New Yorker. I had a New Yorker subscription for a year. I got it as a gift. Articles are like 30,000 pages, but you know what? It works for them. Anyway, the point is, nobody does that with journal articles. The journal articles exist to build knowledge, ultimately. And while it's good, that we have the blind review system so people can't prejudice themselves in negative ways. <laughs> They're looking for certain types of things in these articles. They're looking for certain formats. And a lot of the time, what they're looking for when they accept you is how closely you hew to certain expectations. The reason I wanted to try and publish before I had any data to share or you know, original data to share is because anything that I'm publishing now, I'm at least choosing to believe that my arguments and my writing are good. Because I don't have any data. I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing research, but it's not in the articles yet. I mean, just advancing ideas. Um, I'm not saying this to say I'm so good. I'm saying I didn't want to be publishing things based on potentially interesting data. Because first of all, you don't know if your data is going to be interesting. And second of all, like, then it's going to just become one of those other articles that's in the background. I mean, that's my idea. That's the way I see it. Um, so the whole idea of top journals is really just reinforcing whiteness. Oh, you thought I wasn't going to get back to my main point, right? Because who's the editor? Who's the peer reviewing? I was editing an article for a journal. Um, like I was asked to be a peer reviewer. I've done this a few times. I enjoy doing this. And this is an article about whiteness. And the other editor, because once you do your edit, you get to see all the comments. And the other editor, the, the other editor is rejecting the premise of the article that the problem with whatever the teacher was doing was whiteness, rejecting the premise, not the argument, not the claims, not the conclude, like the premise at first. So the fuck are you reading this article for, man? Why'd you accept it? So you could trash it? And this shit has an impact on people's careers. But that's why I think it's important for me to do scholarship related to whiteness and language teaching. And I, you know, I'm in this chapters I'm writing for next year, I'm veering off into different aspects of whiteness and stuff like that, but I'm still going to keep, you know, a, a foot firmly planted in the language teaching space because, you know, when Dr. Figueroa um, made that list, started that list and I signed up to be one of the 
you know, language people on it. I was the only person listed under whiteness and language teaching. It doesn't mean anybody, nobody else thinks about it, but you know, it's almost like it's so ever, it's like the air, it's just there in language teaching, right? It's like poisonous air, <laughs> pollution. That's what whiteness is in language teaching, it's pollution. It's in the air and you can't do anything about it. We gotta fight it, we gotta face it. Um, so all of that is why uh, I focus on whiteness. Academia, you know, I, I'm, I'm in an EDD program, which is not a PhD program. I correct people when they say that because I don't want them to get it wrong for two reasons. One's physics is technically wrong, right? If you say he's getting a PhD and I don't correct you, then I, well, I mean, people think of EDDs as lesser than PhDs, right? You know a lot of famous PhDs. You don't know that many famous EDDs unless you are literally getting one and then you looked up who they are, right? Like Jill Biden has one. If Jill Biden becomes a second lady soon, then that'll be the most famous person with EDD. <laughs> um, unless you literally know people who have them. But anyway, I got an EDD for a reason. Or I started an EDD program for a reason, which is a PhD. One is that as much as I don't particularly like it, I wanted to keep my job um, and I wanted to find a program that I could go to part-time. I looked around and this program was, you know, more affordable price and I could go part-time. Second, I wasn't sure I wanted to jump into the full academia game after it's over. You see, you just hear horror stories. I also have heard success stories. And I could quote unquote bet on myself and say, I'll be one of those people, but yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, I'm in the EDD program, which means that it is not necessarily the expectation that I will try to be a professor afterwards. We, before we even think about what's gonna happen with hiring with the pandemic and so forth, although we're talking about a couple of years from now. But, The fact that, that in order to get these jobs, generally speaking, the way to prove yourself worthy for these schools is, you know, to publish, right? To bring in money, right? And then we are told that what we're doing is advancing knowledge, primarily. But that's not really why people get hired now, is it? <laughs> I'm getting conspiratorial over here. Uh, it's late, I don't know. <laughs> but like any job, to some extent, like there is a level of skill involved in the people they hire, obviously. But I think a lot of it is how well they can, they can, you know, pat themselves on the back for hiring you. And that's the thing. How do you turn that down? Let's see, I end, let's say I end up with a book project. If I get a book project, schools might want me, even if I don't necessarily know that's what I want to do. And 
what am I going to say? If I get a good, if I get some good offer, what am I going to say? No, I don't want that because the system of academia is harmful and therefore I'm going to go live in a cave. Like, like, you know, um, you think this isn't related to whiteness, but it, but it is because the fact of the matter is when the numbers are so low in terms of any tenure track, anything, or any academia period, um, for black people, or anybody who's not white. Um, then I'm in the same situation I've always been in, you know? I'm the only black face in the room most of the time. Or I've been happy on Twitter that I'm not the only black face there talking about these things, but there's still not very many of us. And I've been that before. I've been the only. It's not fun. So one of the reasons I focus on whiteness is that I want them to know that I am not going to be safe for them. Right? Intellectually, epistemologically, I don't want them to feel safe and comfortable. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the most radical person ever, although I don't know that I believe in hierarchies or at least coercive hierarchies. So that, you know, it's a tenet of anarchism, but we'll talk about that another day. Um, but I think that I'm trying to make it so that anyone who pays attention to me is well aware that I am not going to let them rest. You know, I, I, I've noticed part of the reason that fuels me when I do this writing is, is, is just these small interactions. Like last fall, I was at an event and I, as I started to do this work, I, I you know, I've, I've gone to some language teaching events, obviously fewer since the pandemic, but still. Um, and I come in real skeptical. I come in eyebrow raised. Okay. What are you going to do? So I went to this event and, uh, I told somebody there what I was working on. At that time, I was talking about the altruistic shield thing. And uh, she seemed, you know, nonplussed, let's put it that way. Then she talks to somebody else for a few minutes, and she comes back to me and she says, you know, when they um, allowed more Black students in the class, it was clear that they couldn't keep up with the material right? So, and I told that story on Vocal Prize a while ago, but like, it, you know, <laughs> I get these are just weird things people say to me. Um, and, you know, I, what's weird about it, I think, is that they're trying to insult me, but they don't feel like they can directly. And I think it's because my work is good. I'm not saying nobody's critiqued my work that Washington Post article, because it's so mainstream, got a lot of people mad. Um, although it mostly got people uncomfortable. And I, I, that's fun. Um, the two main sources of discomfort were white parents telling me that racism is a systemic issue, which it is. But when they say systemic, they mean 
that therefore the individual is not at fault. Or the other complaint they had was, well, what do you want me to do? Which is a complaint I hear all the time when I talk about lightness. It seems that when people say, what do you want me to do? It means they haven't read my articles because as much as I actually hate putting in instructions, every single time I write an article or an essay or a chapter, it ends with, and here's how you could make this better. I don't just do this out of frustration and anger. There's some of that. But I want people to take, like the reason I offer the classes that I do, um, which you can check on my website, um, is because I want people to do better. And I don't mean that vaguely. I mean, I want them to actually make changes for the better. You get me? I'm making this shit up, you know what I'm saying? Like, I really want people to make changes. Um, so, I feel like, although I understand the argument, why focus on whiteness? You know, why even buy into the concept of race? Um, because there's hundreds, maybe not hundreds, but like 150 years of codified scholarship that has not been like fully retracted. It's still in the annals of these journals that it's just anti-Black hogwash. And there's still articles being published talking about the achievement gap and the word gap in uncritical ways. One of my, you know, classmates, I didn't find this out until recently, he works at a community college and he wants to focus on how to improve students' grit. Motherfucker. No. <laughs> and this is my program where people can be, not everybody in my program is amazing, but you know, um, we're just generally progressive. I don't necessarily mean politically, I don't know what their politics are, but like, you know, generally forward thinking. And this guy is in a community college. He wants to improve his student's grid. So I think I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, unsettling people might be the best I can hope for at this point. You know, when they say disrupt, generally they're talking about a young white man who took some of the money that a slightly older white man was going to have, disrupting this business. Oh, wow, they found a new way to pay people less and therefore they get more profit. That's very disruptive to the people you're not paying. Um, but... <laughs> I, I, the reason I say that is because I, I would like to be genuinely disruptive. You know, in my first semester of my program, I told my dean, who I had requested a meeting with, because I'm impatient like that, um, I have a lot of things to say about the language teaching field, but I don't just want to be throwing bombs. He said, you know, that is a possible scholarly path. And I mean, at this point, although I'm still 
submitting for publications and so forth. And I actually have one in, you know, being reviewed at a top, top journal at the moment. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, I mean, like, I don't, something I'm working on now, the antisocial thugs thing, you might've heard me talking about. I don't want to put that in a journal. I want people to read it, man. Yeah, I want scholars to read it, but scholars read mainstream publications too. It's just that everybody else doesn't read scholarly publications. It's not going to end up in the newspaper because it's written in a certain way, although I could change it. But like, I want to get that out there. I don't like, you know, people say that you should put together academic books to get somewhere but like I don't want to write any academic books man I I'm reading one right now that's very good but let's be clear that's because they deliberately chose to write it in a different way I also reached out to the editors of it and they seem to you know one of the things also that I've mentioned that I think is really important for all of this is for any of these anyone who's listening to this you know, here's like a couple hundred of you. Um, reach out to the people who write the articles you like. Most of them will talk to you. You know, that's one of the things that I find really valuable about social media is that like, I can find most of the people that, you know, and I'm just like, why did this person write this? I can go ask them. They don't always respond to them. That's fine. They don't owe me their time or their labor. Um, but the point is, I write about whiteness and different aspects of it because I think that with my positioning or my positionality, it is my best way to change things. And I think they tell everybody to write what you know. That doesn't mean you can't learn more, but I know certain part of that world and I would like to see it demolished. So in closing, because <laughs> I just sort of babbled here, but I think there was some interesting points in here. Um, I just want to point out that what I'm trying to do with my work, with my sort of analysis of whiteness, is to make it so, especially so that Anybody who gets in the room with whiteness, metaphorically, but literally, um, doesn't let it off the hook. I feel as though epistemology, scholarship, you know, this is the, the top, right? This is, this is where, where wisdom comes from, they say, you know, in, in our society. And there's so much stuff being put out there that is not challenging the levers of power that I think just calling out the construction of knowledge itself as being endemic to the problem or as being beholden to whiteness is my most important role. Because ultimately, 
how much of the awful stuff that's happened has been justified through scholarship. I remember people saying that we should take Charles Murray seriously because he's a, he has a doctorate and he's a scholar. It's like, yo man, there's anti-black scholars of every discipline. And one of the things I said recently is that you cannot be a good educator if you don't question anti-blackness in yourself and in your world. You cannot be a good scholar if you don't question anti-blackness, if you don't question whiteness. Why? Because it's wrong. And I don't mean morally. I mean, it's factually wrong that different races of people, and again, contending races exist in the first place, are of different levels of value. So if you support that concept, this hierarchy at all, you are supporting a false premise and therefore you are doing bad work. So that's it. Uh, I will be back with a special episode sometime next week about Lovecraft Country, uh, which I'm actually about to go watch because it's Sunday as I record this. And that should be a really fun episode. So uh, thanks for listening to Just Me today and uh, Lovecraft Country coming up soon. <laughs>